We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. This has been seven years in the making. Nick Yaris, True Geordie Podcast 2016. Groundbreaking, virality, inspirational, heartbreaking, harrowing, hard-hitting story. It's got every element of a classic story you could think of. Then you've got the documentary, if you've not seen it, oh my goodness. But Nick is here now in the UK, back in the UK. We've been communicating for years and I'm just so grateful that I'm sat here with Nick today because he's been one of the biggest inspirations in my life. What I went through six years in Sheriff Joe Pires Jail, walk in the park. Imagine being innocent on death row for decades and they think you've done a heinous crime against the woman. So huge thanks to Nick for being here and we talked on the phone about what to start with and I mentioned to Nick I recently interviewed Michael Thompson, head of the Aryan Brotherhood, Joey Torres, head of the co-founder of 18th Street. Both those guys served 40 plus years in California. Both were in Corcoran prison where there were gladiator games. Prisoners were set against prisoners to fight to the death. If they didn't fight they were just shot. They had the ambulance ready. They had the uh, medical re- reports already written up before the fights and the deaths occurred. And they had female staff members in rows watching the fights. But you were telling me that this actually started, Nick, and huge thank you for being here today, that this started where you were at. Yeah, so Joseph Lehman was the Department of Corrections um, head in Pennsylvania. He created the shoe program that they took to California, and that's where they created Pelican Island. Um, the very first ones that came across um, Pennsylvania was Green County Supermax, and uh, it all started at Huntington State Prison, the only prison in America ever condemned by the United Nations for its active practices of torture. So serious business. They were of a mindset early on, they needed a prison to break you. If you stabbed a prisoner, murdered a staff member, raped a staff member, or you raped another prisoner, they had to send you somewhere that was so hard or make it mentally so hard, you wouldn't do these things. So I started off as the second youngest person in America, in Pennsylvania, to be sentenced to die in 1982. At that time, there was only 27 death row prisoners in that situation. The rest of them were all in punishment. That's where they started death row. That's why it was so draconian that I wasn't allowed to speak in my cell for the first two years because it was still a punishment unit. It wasn't death row. So I'm really grateful that these other men that came on here from Cochrane They talked about what is real. Back in the 80s and the early 90s, there was gladiators time where it started in Pennsylvania where the guards would just pick two guys out when the lieutenant wasn't on the block and you had three to five minutes in the cage with another man. 
And so I've seen people get their eyes gouged out. Like there was one incident in uh, which uh, a guy named Mudman in New Jersey was beaten to death repeatedly by another death row prisoner and the guards just stood there. So in their mind, anyone sentenced to death, anyone sitting on death row was deserving of any behavior that they deemed fit. And that's really horrible. I just tuned it out. It's strange. I went on a journey. So Nick, did the guards try and get you to participate in the gladiator fights? It wasn't by choice. Um, a lot of the prison guards that were originally in Huntington State Prison were white. When the epidemic of crack and the housing of mental ill people was changed, uh, the prison system swelled to almost 2 million people, and they kept bringing up Spanish-speaking guards and black officers up into the mountains. When they saw these white officers beating the shit out of everything black and brown, they were disgusted by it. But you can't have staff-on-staff fighting. So in a crazy cockamamie way, they came up with a scheme that a black prisoner and a white prisoner could fight, and the black guards would pick out the one and the white guards would pick out the other. Gladiator. That's what the guys in the California system are trying to tell you. The paperwork's already written up. If you don't fight, it's already a write-up waiting with your name on it. So four guys would stand out there and they would scream at you, get him, get him, and get him. And then if you didn't fight, man, both of you getting beaten down, man. You know how a a four-foot oak stick feels on the backs of your legs? I do. I still got nerve damage. I got CTE, which is encephalitis of the brain because of the beatings they gave me and made me fight. How many times did they hit you with the oak stick? So it wasn't just them, though. I had a lot of fights, didn't I? So I had, I don't know, at least 10 good concussions, I bet. Because I remember not feeling well for a couple of weeks after a really bad beating where I couldn't focus and stuff. So, Is this because you had a fight with a guard? Oh, no. Um, I got attacked, and um, I got my head beaten up against a railing. Over what? While I was being stabbed. Huh? What was that over? Oh, a guy named Ben Porter stabbed me in the stomach so hard that I had to headbutt him over and over, and I missed at one point and hit the railing. Had it been building up, or was it just a sudden thing? He was uh, so. Ben stabbed me um, in the county jail. A guy named Michael Wolf hit him with a chair. They put me and Ben deliberately on the same prison bus. I attacked Ben, kicked him a whole bunch in his face. They took me off the bus, and a week later, put me back in the cell right next to him, knowing that when the doors opened up, he was going to attack me, and he did. So I didn't think he had a knife. But he did, and he got it in me pretty good, so I had to hold his hand and keep headbutting him to get him off me. And at one point, I went to headbutt him, and I hit the metal railing really hard because after that, I had, like, weeks of problems with headaches and focus blindness, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. 
And that was because of the nature of your charges that you were wrongfully convicted for. Yeah, plus people knew that if you killed me, or most people that have killed someone in a heinous manner, if you kill them, someone's going to put mysteriously just put money on your books back then. They didn't have to be a friend or a relative. So word was out that I was worth $10,000, so they, you know. Nick, we'll give the viewers a taste of your t- prison stories. Let's go back now and describe how all this unfolds from your childhood. What was it like for you getting raised? So Philadelphia was beautiful when I started off. I remember that we used to have these competitions in the neighborhood for beautification with block captains organizing little events. And we used to have block parties where we'd block off the street in the summertime and have food and music and I remember going into town and and seeing Teddy Pendergrass and Petty LaBelle and getting in for free, and they called it Super Sunday, and you could get your face painted, and Philadelphia was the coolest place in the world in the 70s to grow up. Like, I I remember going as a child, um, always swimming. We always just used to go down to the wildlife preserve and everything, and because our neighborhood was right up against the Philadelphia airport. It was all like nature and open, you know? And unfortunately, when I was a seven-year-old boy, I got attacked and had a man beat my head in with a rock. So that trajectory change in my life totally ruined everything for me because I only felt empowerment once I started drinking alcohol at a family function or... I discovered that I didn't have to live in fear anymore, you know? And I became a really brusque and aggressive child. I actually got kicked out of the Philadelphia school system for being ultra-violent. And I was put into a juvenile facility um, for multiple petty crimes. So everything in my life was ruined at that point. Nick, are you worried to talk about that attack or don't you want to relive it? Well, it's one of those things that I've already made peace with it do you understand when you've had something actually that deep and traumatic done to you you can either compartmentalize it or you can make it a a validation for why you can't bond or trust it's actually just one of the many horrific events in my life nick what did your parents do so my mother worked at the philadelphia airport as a cashier in the concourses My father was a roofer for the unions in Philadelphia that did roofing. My grandmother, Hattie Shaw from Ireland, she was the caretaker in the house so that my parents could work and me and five siblings could go to school. How did your parents meet? I don't remember that story very well, but my father had just sold the pig farm to the city They had um, taken it by eminent domain. So my father, my brother, his brother, Nicky, and his other brother, Johnny, were paid out from the city for the land that we owned down, what's now part of the Philadelphia airport, you know, that area. And my mother and he met, and they lived on the little street called Milan Street. And 
I was the second to the youngest child in the family. I had three older sisters, an older brother named Mikey, and a younger brother named Marty, both deceased. How do I feel having so many siblings? So, I don't know what you mean. Having so many brothers and sisters, how did that feel? Like, were you guys always playing together? Was there sibling rivalry? Were you looking out for each other at school? Um, yeah, a lot of it was me being an asshole. Um, Why? I hated everyone. Is that before the attack or after the attack? After. Yeah, it's really difficult to acknowledge, but if you would have met me when I was 18 or 19 years old, you would have been absolutely disgusted by me. Cause but what about when you were starting at school, just as a kid? Yeah, I had to wear eyeglasses. And I couldn't see real well, and I started getting resentful, and I fell behind. I knew I was clever, but I didn't adhere to the education. And were there any subjects that you particularly liked? Yeah, I used to build uh, wooden chess sets with my brother, so that was the one thing that I really gravitated to. I had a really brilliant uh, bond with my older brother, Mikey, and... He was so sharp and so brilliant. I always just emulated everything he did. When I was about nine years old, I got picked on because I had um, Pro Keds was the name of the t uh, shoe, and they were called Bobos. And if you wore these shoes, it was like you were broke, you know what I mean? So my brother had a used pair of white Chuck Taylor shoes, and he gave me his Chuck Taylors, even though they were a size too big for my feet, to protect me from bullying. That was pretty cool. Did you bond more with your mom or your dad? My mom. She was um, able to understand that Mikey was the apple of my father's eye, being named after his namesake and everything. So she kind of played favors like that. It's funny, when you have six children, she was always in the middle of six different things. You know what I mean? So I remember when I was too young to go hunting with my brother, Mikey, and my dad, that me and Marty, would, my younger brother, would be perched on chairs in the kitchen, and my mom would make it up to us by making poor man's cake and other favorite treats of ours. So, yeah. So the day you were attacked and in the woods... Were you with your brothers and sisters or were you just on your own? No, I was on my own because I was home from school for some reason. And my mother, it's the only memory I have of that day prior to the attack is what my mother shouted at me going out the door. And then... What did she shout? Don't get your school clothes dirty. It's the usual thing, you know. So... So where were you when it happened? It's odd. I just went back to Philadelphia and filmed all this with a film crew. So, 250 yards from the door I lived in, in the woods, back behind the housing, there's an overgrowth of trees that was always there, and that's where I was attacked by a, a kid that might be 10 years older than me, 12 years older than me, something like that. So, In the documentary, something to do with a cigarette, does he have you smoke some... Yeah, so some green or something? No, he he wore a T-shirt with a pack of cigarettes in the sleeve, like they used to do back in the greaser days. 
and he had his hobnail boots and blue jeans, and yeah, he wanted to look tough, didn't he? And in my head, he looked enormous. He was one of these people that I had seen assault other adults, so I was really aware of how violent he was, you know what I mean? If this guy was knocking out grown men, there was no chance I had at the age of seven to defend myself. So after the initial attack, I would see him in the neighborhood, and he would try and terrorize me by making me very much aware that he owned me by this lie, and he would flinch at me, you know, like he was going to throw a punch at me whenever he had a chance. So I would go and sit in my parents' basement and punch myself in the legs because I couldn't stop wanting to feel afraid, you know. Did you not tell anybody? No, that's the trouble, isn't it? I made the mistake that's common amongst a lot of children out of shame. I couldn't understand why someone would want to do that to a boy, you know, so I internalized. I did all the stupid things. That's why I told you. All right, so I was just a small child. Everybody thought I was going to be short like my father, but at the age of 14, I then changed, and by the time I was 16 years old, I was six foot two, and I weighed close to 200 pounds. So I kept getting in trouble, and they kept putting me in a juvenile situation. I ended up getting trained by the Joe Frazier gym boxing uh, coaches that were counselors in my unit, and I became very gifted as a boxer, didn't I? And I confronted my attacker when I was... 18, 19 years old. Where was he? He was coming down from some train trestle tracks towards me. And he recognized in that moment that I wasn't a child and he was shitting himself. And he had a quart of beer, I'll never forget, in his hand. And he dropped it and it broke. And then he started this pathetic pleading with me. Nick, you know, I got all kind of problems. You got to understand. And then as he was standing there, I'm like, damn, this dude ain't no more than like five foot nine, 175 pounds, maybe. And in my head, he was this monster, you know? And the more he pleaded with me and became pathetic, this horrible milk toast version of a human being, I freaked out and told him to get away from me. And then I actually jumped down off of this concrete table thing and I ran off man like I was sickened by him prior to that Nick had you rehearsed in your mind what you were going to do to him oh I I was going to take him out a lot of times like I caught him one time drunk and it was in the snow and I had a rock and I was going to beat his head in and kill him but I couldn't do it you know like I kept thinking what am I doing what stopped you when you got to that moment I don't know Hand to God. Was it the re-traumatization of, you know, being in his presence? No, I'm I'm telling you. I had every intention of, a, of hunting down and killing my attacker like most people feel. But I actually had a chance when he was drunk one night and I was going to go ahead and attack him. But I thought, nah, I'm not doing that to myself. And like I said, when I confronted him, finally... I was so sickened by it, I actually left Philadelphia, ran away, and I ended up in Florida, and they put me in a mental institution when I was uh, 19 years old. On what basis? 
I blew out a hotel room after taking all these drugs, and they put me in there for my own protection. And I was finally, for the first time ever in my life, diagnosed with aphasia. Blunt force trauma causes aphasia just like genetics. So um, the difficulty was I didn't know that the one drug that I was using was the one drug that was really eviscerating my brain, which was methamphetamine. So it was really deep time um, to learn about myself while I was sitting in a mental institution. And I spent eight months there going through all this therapy recognition of what what's done to my brain and going through the scans and stuff. So the crazy thing is all of this has been verified. Like they have my, my hospital records from Florida during my trial and everything. So, yeah. Dude beat my head in and left me with aphasia. And I ended up not being able to have patience with others. Or if I become stressed, I have no recognition of rational thought. And it really drove me crazy as a young person because I was doing drugs. So thankfully, I haven't been drunk in 42 years and I don't do meth or any kind of drugs. Nick, what was the first drug you ever took? LSD. How old? 11. Who gave it you? I stole it. Can you describe that story? My brother dropped one on the floor. He was holding it for his friend. And it was a purple micro dot. And I saw it just out of the corner of my eye. And I walked over and picked it up. And I lied to him and said I couldn't find it. So he threw me out of the bedroom and kept looking for it. And then I went downstairs. And I went outside. And it was a bright sunny day. And I went down to what was called Elmwood Park. And it was so hot. I wanted to cool my feet off, so I took my trainers off and I put them over my neck. And then the next thing I know, there was a giant pair of shoes trying to stomp me to death and I was running from these shoes up the middle of the street, screaming my head off, and everybody thought I'd lost my mind. So, What was the next drug after that? Beer, 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 beer. I didn't start anything. and I was uh, drinking a lot at first because it was easy access. How did it make you feel? Uh, just total lack of fear. So my whole basis was I lived in a, you got to understand too, when I got attacked, that was nothing, man. Martin Luther King Jr. got his head blown off. The cities around me got lit on fire. The beautiful gardens that I described were just destroyed. Everyone was hateful and angry and everybody was doing dope. Literally, Everyone I knew either was doing dope, sold dope, or was trying to get dope. Philadelphia is so hard with 500 murders a year, man. For the English viewers, Nick, dope could mean various things. He's talking about green, he's talking about meth. And I'm talking about methamphetamine. Uh, Coke wasn't really popular, but it was weed, hash, meth, THC, and pills. And everyone wanted... Um, Quaalude and Delauda and um, Secondall. So every kind of pill everybody was loving back then, especially Quaaludes. So they were selling for as much as $15 per pill. So you're self-medicating? Everyone was self-medicating because there was so much gang violence and so much racial tension because in the 70s, the gang wars were just huge. Like, I remember when I was a 13-year-old boy, uh, a woman named Sister Falaka and the Nation of Islam women 
were protesting in the city of Philadelphia because there were so many black kids being murdered by the Moon Gang or other gangs in Philadelphia that had 400 members. So it was the gangs of New York on steroids back then when I was growing up. How did you fit into that, though, Nick? Were you a gang member, or who were your friends? You had to come out and stand on the corner. There was no internet, and you didn't have anywhere to go. So right after dinner, all we did was gang up, so on the corner. So it's your neighborhood representing Yeah, so you had to stand on the corner of 74th Street with, like, 15 other kids and hope nobody attacked that night. Then 77th Street had a big gang, and then... The uh, park up at 73rd Street had a big one. But the bigger ones, like I said, was like up in the the areas that were black. You had a lot of ex-Vietnam soldiers coming back, and they were just next level. So was your neighborhood predominantly white? Yeah, we had a small pocket up against a black neighborhood above us in the north, and then uh, South Philadelphia was mostly Italian and black, so... Southwest Philly was this hard little pocket. If you, you know, if you was known from being from Southwest Philly, people had mad respect because you had to be tough to be from my neighborhood. Like, literally, the women were hard. They got razors, man. <coughs> Who were your best friends? Yeah, so me and Eddie Rossiter and a, a kid named Norman used to be the three amigos at one point. <laughs> so... Eddie and I just, I don't know, kind of hung out and, and we're friends for a long time. So last time I heard from him, I think he might be dead now, but all of my childhood friends are dead. What kind of stuff did you do with your friends back then when you were a teenager? So basically get high, uh, steal to get high and do all the stupid things that were going on back in the 70s. I I really didn't have any education or any hope other than going to get a trade job. So, What were you stealing? Cars. And the easiest thing back then was cars. How much could you get for a car? Between $500 and $1,000 a car. And we just blitz through that. So that was nothing. Yeah, so we would flip through three, four cars a night sometimes on a, a rotation. So you and three mates go out and you get a car... And the three of you get in, and you get two more cars. Then you take those three, drop those two off, go back and get two more cars, so you have five-car night. Get it? So you're becoming more known to the cops at this age as well? Oh, yeah. So I was, yeah. What was your first arrest? Um, it's funny. We used to go um, and and do, like, hooligan things. It's like abandoned houses. We would break into abandoned houses and just... Like kids, though, innocently, just, you know, be stupidly in there playing and not even damaging. Yeah, we've all done that. Right. But then that's, yeah, that's the first one. So you got arrested for that. Did they, was it a case of what, just call your parents and try yeah, and frighten and you? Yeah, 24 hours later, yeah. They, I mean, they had your parents, yeah, they left you in there for a few hours and your dad came in and yelled at you. What was the next arrest? Car. Yeah, Cars. Which was the first arrest that you had to do some time for? Oh, man, I did burglary. Um, so I broke into a couple of houses in the snow and stupidly walked home, and fi- the police just filed me you. in the snow and knocked on my dad's door and said, excuse me, but whoever's wearing a size 10 and a half shoe 
and has this footprint. Could you have them come out there? My dad picked up my boots and then grabbed me and said, here he is. Sent- how, how did that feel for your dad to, to, to be in that situation with you? You got to understand, it's Philly. My dad worked for a roofer's union. I got arrested for having a pellet gun, and the cop lied and fired a shot. I don't know where he shot it at, but he said to the court that I fired a pellet pistol at him. But before I went into the court, my dad sat down at a lawyer's desk, and the lawyer pulled out a sliding top of his door, a drawer, and on it was a list of all of the crimes for juveniles and adults. So a juvenile caught with a pistol was $250 plus 200 to the judge. Racket. No, it was Philly. So, yeah, you could literally have all the way up to a homicide negotiated. What was it like going in juvie for the first time? Yeah, that wasn't pretty because I'm from southwest Philly and we didn't have a lot of kids in there. So How old? 15, 16. Take us through your first day. Nah, yeah, so after you get processed into the unit, it's a big day room. And as soon as the counselor um, steps off, someone's going to ask you where you're from. You don't say shit, you just punch him in his face. How many times did you have to do that? Oh, it just, that's that first day, you just, that's, all right, so, yeah. It's going to happen a few more times here and there when someone ain't going to believe in that, but. Is it dorms or cells? Yeah, me and this kid, Billy Romolini, man, we fought like eight kids at once, and I took a lamp off the wall. So, you got to understand, back then it was serious. I got stabbed in my classroom in, in Bartram High School and then took the pencil out of me and tried to stab the kid back and stab my teacher. So on my record it says, I stabbed my teacher. But it didn't say with the pencil that he pulled out of himself that he got stabbed with. Yeah, man. So this is escalating then, and you're becoming known amongst the cops. And how did it get to where they set you up for the big one? So I'm driving a stolen car. I I relapsed. I came back from Florida from the mental institution examination, and I did really good, Sean. I had a job. I met this girl. I was doing all right, you know. Like, it wasn't good money, but I was at least living in my parents' house. My brother Mikey was down in the basement. My sisters had all moved out except for one. So... I'm like, yeah, I, I can do this, right? And I was staying away from getting high. Then I got stopped on December 4th, 1981 for a stolen car. <clears throat> and I made the mistake of running from the Philadelphia Highway Patrol. They chased me for about 10 blocks. And then another paddy wagon pulled up and caught me and held me for him. And dude walked up and busted me in the mouth and ripped all this up. with a. It's called a beaver tail blackjack. He popped me right in the mouth, man. I was, oh, man, he got me good. And these ladies were across the street, and they was like, yo, leave him alone, leave him alone. They said, bitch, you're next if you don't go. And my mag, I swear to God, they acted like they didn't see nothing. They just, yep. So took me to jail, and my mouth was so damaged, the cops uh, beat me so badly, the judge let me out on my own recognizance. Okay. I go back to my parents' house, and I'm drinking beer, A, because I'm drinking, and B, 
I'm actually trying to cauterize the damage done inside my mouth because I had so many stitches, they actually had to cauterize it, right? So, yeah, like it's a If I lift my mouth up and show you, you can still see this is 40 years ago how bad that shit was. So, a new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So, when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Three weeks later, after sitting in my room and stewing and getting angry, I got off my friend, and I started getting high again. So on December 20th, 1981, two weeks after that beating, I get pulled over in the city of Chester by a policeman and I'm so terrified to react because I'm not getting out and running and getting beat again. My mouth is just now healing, right? And I panicked. And my aphasia kicks in and I can't move. I look up at dude and he's right there. And I, I, I know he's saying stuff. You know what I mean? He rips the door open. Now the music that was playing in the car comes out because now I can hear that. And he starts yelling at me, grabs me, pushes me backwards against the car roof. And he put his forearm against my throat. And when he did, I was like, wow, you know, so I smashed his arm off me, pushed him back. He grabs his nightstick, one hand, left hand, grabbed that right out of his hand and took it off him. He couldn't believe that. So then he reaches for his pistol. I'm like, oh, no, you're not. And I reached out and I grabbed his hand with both my hands and pushed down like that and the gun went off. So that's when everything stopped and I started yelling, okay, okay, trying to get him to calm down. So he puts the gun up under my neck, puts me in the car, shouting at me, all that, puts me in the back seat. Then he composed himself, got in the car, looked in that mirror, looking at me, checking himself out. Then he just got the phone and he starts yelling, officer assist, shots fired. I'm being attacked. Dude, everything was over, man. So here come the police. They ripped me out of the car, whipped my ass, take me to jail. And I remember there was a sergeant on duty in the Chester County Jail and his name was Red. He was a big uh, African-American dude. And, uh, he kept standing by the door. And he, every time they went by, he was like, nope, nope, you're not going to kill him. Leave him alone. But yeah, every 15 minutes, Benny Wright, the, uh, the officer, who would later be arrested 
and charged and kicked off the force, by the way. He wanted his vengeance at night. So I got charged with the attempted murder, kidnapping, and um, reckless endangerment and possession of a firearm of a police officer. And I felt my life was over because I was facing life imprisonment at that moment. So they throw me in jail. I go through drug withdrawals and I lose it. It's a shame because I keep thinking back to these moments. Why on earth was I left in a cell with a newspaper about a murder on the front page? Crazy. And then I sat there and I kept thinking, you lied on me. You put me in here on a lot of all the things I've done. I admit all of them. Have you not seen? I admit I was a thief and I did all these things, right? Yeah, I stole a car. I was trying to get more drugs, but I didn't try to murder anybody. I didn't try and take any gun or anything. I was so angry about that. I thought, you want to play this live game? I'm going to make up a lie about that murder and say that I know something about it and get out of here. Then I'm going to burn you. I'm going to run off and leave you holding the bag. Sean, that's the stupidest thing a 20-year-old kid can think of, man. It's understandable, though. But I was so angry. I really wanted to get out, and I was so hurt by them lying about me. And at first, they, when they believed me, they even said they got off the phone with Officer Wright, and he was willing to reduce the charges to reckless endangerment and resisting arrest, and I would get out in three days. And that was it. And I was like, what? And they, yeah, like you can get probation. If this is all true, you're doing a huge service to this community. Thank you. And we want you to know you're going to go on with your life. I'm like, okay. Then when they found out I was lying, would they say, oh, no, that deal's off the table. And you know how it is, man. It's all a deal system over there. It's not like over here. They tried to barter. Like, oh, my God. On a lie. I had no idea that a jury would find me not guilty of all those charges from that officer after only 20 minutes of deliberation. But by then I was already charged with the rape and murder of a woman I never met because I made up that story saying that I told the police I knew who did it. They twisted it all around and said it was me making a cry for help. And then they added their own mode of saying, I must have done this because my girlfriend looked like the woman and because me and my girlfriend broke up because of my drug use, I went out and killed this woman in vengeance. I'm like, that doesn't even make sense. So just going back to you getting found not guilty of of the murder or attempting murder of the cop. How good was your lawyer at that one? I was represented for both. Um, my trial against Officer Benjamin Wright for attempted murder and for the rape and murder of Linda May Craig by a man named Samuel Stretton who agreed to represent me for both trials for a sum total of $1,500. And that's all the money I had left to me from my grandfather from my will, from his will. So then, to get a not guilty then, did he do his job at the first one properly? Yeah, he was very clever. Officer Benjamin Wright told the court all about the attack, culminating with a photograph of his hand, saying that that was proof that I took the gun from his hand 
So Samuel Stretton asked him to explain one thing. If I had assaulted this officer, punched him in his face, broke his eyeglasses, and hit him with the gun that he said that I took out of his hand, why didn't he photograph his face? And that's when the officer's story just fell to shit. And uh, the jury decided they were going to find me not guilty. Did you know at that moment? The whole courtroom did. How did that feel? Terrible. Why? The prosecutor took the file and threw it against the wall, turned around and said, motherfucker, you'll never leave this county alive. I swear to God. To you? Yeah, right in my face. And then took over the murder trial. He had nothing to Same do with Same prosecutor. He never had nothing to do with the murder case. He took over the murder trial the very next week and began seeking the death penalty the very next week. His name is Barry Gross. Yeah, man. And it was him seeking revenge. You know, he did the same thing to Nicky Scarfo, the mobster. Did he? Yeah, Nicky Scarfo got found not guilty in New Jersey for murder. Barry Gross was the prosecutor. And you could look it up in the records. He exploded in the courtroom. He couldn't take the loss. So he left the Department of Justice and became, of all things, a professor in Delaware. How did your lawyer perform at the next trial? Overwhelmed. Sean, they showed the jury photographs of that poor woman. Create an emotional reaction in the jury so they, they showed anything. They showed two children's footprints in the snow after they had found the victim in the snow and it looked like angels' wings. The jury couldn't look at me after they had seen that, man. And I knew right then and there they were going to take my life. That's so why I'm telling trick, They tricked them, don't they? Create an emotional reaction when there's no physical evidence. Yeah, no murder weapon, no motive, no witnesses. No evidence linking me to the crime other than the fact that the killer had B-positive blood, same as me, same as 15% of the white male population in America. So, Can you just take us through the trial a bit then, when you, f- you knew it was, gonna, it was going to shit? Oh, it was right after they showed those photographs and did all that horrible shit to me. I shit you not, man. The Delaware County Courthouse was struck by a bolt of lightning. It knocked the power out in the building, and they all jumped up like they were terrified, and they hustled me out of the courtroom like I had done something. They took me upstairs, and they put me in this big court holding cell up there. It was late afternoon, and I could see all the people below me, and I heard this thing in my head, telling me to look them in the eye. I'm not making this up. It's all real. So that's why in the newspapers, when the judge was sentenced me to death, I was beside myself because no one could look me in the eye. Like they all was ashamed, you know? So I was asking them, how could you possibly sentence me to death and you don't even have the courage to look at me at that sir can you look at me in the face you're about to sentence me to death and you don't have the courage to look me in the eye is exactly what i said and he got frustrated and he asked me was i finished and i told him no 
that he could go to hell. So in the newspaper, all it said was, defiant killer tells judge to go to hell. But no, that wasn't no what remorse. I said. That's what they're going to pray yeah. on. And what was your lawyer's attitude then when the verdict came in? Was he shook up? Yeah, that's crazy. I'm a 21-year-old kid who just got sentenced to death, and my lawyer is crying his eyes out while I'm holding him, comforting him, instead of me being the one crying in his arms, like in the fucking movie. My lawyer was crying openly, and I was holding him through the bars, saying, don't worry, Sam, I believe in you. When you become a senator, I know you'll get justice for me. That man was crying his eyes out in my fucking arms. I'm, I'm the kid that just got sentenced to die. Hope you're enjoying this podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money. The other day, I had to cancel free Amazon Prime memberships. I had a personal on the UK, Amazon, US Amazon company account, US Amazon, UK Amazon. Do you understand how hard it is to cancel these bloody things? That's why Rocket Money makes these things so much easier, formerly known as Truebill. The app shows all your subscriptions in one place and cancels what you don't want for you. Rocket Money can even find subscriptions you didn't know you were paying for. Just like with me, with my four Amazon Prime memberships, you may find out you've been at least double charged for a subscription. To cancel a subscription, all you've got to do is press cancel and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Cancel unnecessary subscriptions with Rocket Money today. Go to rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Seriously, it could save you hundreds per year that's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Rocket Money. Links in the description box. Cheers. Was he done with you after that or did he promise to do an appeal for you? He had to leave. He couldn't do anything. I couldn't afford to pay him. So my court case got sent back by the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court and I was going to be entitled to a new trial. They did me so wrong they convicted me of crimes that didn't even happen in the state of Pennsylvania and used them to put me on death row. I knew I was getting a new trial. But when I was being transported to court in 1985, I escaped, didn't I? And this is one of the biggest, craziest moments of my life where, by sheer happenstance, I escaped from death row. Nick, can I just stop you there for a second? We've not had many guests on this podcast that have been sentenced to death. We had one guy in Thailand. I think you're, it's just you and him. When that sentence comes down, what goes through your head? I already told you this. This is true. I wanted somebody to look me in the eye. No one in the room had the guts to look me in the eye when I was being sentenced to death. So what was going through my mind over and over is, how can you not look me in the eye? But there well, must why be, do you flinch? But there must be more than that. Are you yeah. like, what manner of execution were they carrying out at that time? They were going to electrocute me in a chair. So was that on your mind? Were you seeing yourself in the chair perhaps? or I didn't do it. I didn't care about any of that. You don't think like that when you haven't done something. So you had faith that somehow you would, you would get it overturned, no. even at that moment when the sentence came down? Nope. All you were was just focused on people looking you in the eye You in that moment. When you haven't done something and those people are right in front of you saying something horrible, the only thing that matters is 
What happened to your respect? You're, that's what you're fighting for right at that moment. Why can't you look me in the face when you know you're lying on me? Isn't that what we say to people? Hey, how come you can't look at me when you know you're lying? That's what I did, and that's all I kept saying. I was 20 years old. I didn't have the mindset to think or feel or react. I felt bad for my parents standing behind me in utter shambles. My sister crying out in horror, knowing I'd just been convicted of rape as well, so she knew what happens to rapists in jail. I knew all those things, but I didn't care because I wanted somebody to look me in the eye because this was a lie. You see, when that's the only thing that just mattered. I didn't care about the rest. They could have done whatever they wanted to me. They could have killed me. I didn't care. I just didn't want to live with a lie. What did you want them to feel by asking them to look you in the eye? <laughs> Recognition for how shit how shameful and empty and pathetic a performance they used to gain a conviction against someone who obviously didn't commit this crime. The original witnesses in the crime described a person five foot four, five foot seven possibly, with dark black, greasy brown hair. All of those documents were removed from my trial records and I was not given 33 pages of this, the homicide file. Like I said, it didn't really matter. My appeals got ruined when I escaped. Nick, before we go there, when the sentence came down, did you look at your mom? Nope. Did you look at your dad? Nope. Did you have any communication with them all before they took you away? Nope. Why, why didn't you look at them? Because I was busy looking at his honor who couldn't look at me until they took me out of there forcefully. I didn't do it. And then once you got taken away then, what was the first communication you had with your parents after that? Phone call to my mom and dad. They had to leave Philadelphia to go up into the Tawanda area of Pennsylvania to get away from the harassment. People were outside their house harassing them. The press were outside the house harassing them calling my mom in the middle of the night calling her the dirty whore who gave birth to the monster that I was. That was the first conversation you had Man, with Man, women cornered my mom in a supermarket and spit in her face, man. How did it make you feel hearing all that? Like it's going to take a lot to kill me and I'm coming back. Was there any uh, reassurance, like, you were going to get through this? You know, it's going to all come out that you didn't do it, that kind of conversation? My mom was cooking dinner for me at the time of the murder. I didn't need to have that conversation with someone who was literally feeding me 26 miles away from the crime scene at the very time of the crime. We didn't have to have that conversation. We the, just talked about the next steps the appeal. of how we would fight. The appeal. Yeah. But that takes a long time, doesn't it? There was a lawyer named Joe Bullen had my mom in her office, his office on the day of my escape trying to get her to accept a plea bargain where because my case was remanded back for all these violations, they wanted me to quietly stand in court and accept a third-degree conviction and they would take away the death penalty and all this other stuff. My mom says, stop, stop, stop. Do you know 
if I thought my son Nicky did this murder, I would pull the switch myself. Do you understand that whoever hurt that woman is a disgusting human being and that's not my son? I never knew that until later, but that's really what happened. They were sincere about trying to sweep this all under the rug after they got the conviction. Did your parents come and visit you? Yeah, so I would get a birthday visit and a Christmas visit because they were trying to hold the family together while they were 350 miles away from me. What's a visitation like in death row, Philly? Behind the glass? It wasn't behind the glass until 89, but initially it was really hard because they put you in these attorney booths or they put you isolated, made you feel awkward. They used to strip search my mom to discourage her from visiting me, man. Were you all triple cuffed? Yeah, it doubled up. So leg irons and handcuffs and a, a waist chain. Belly chain. And you got to be in that the whole visit. Yeah. So you can't even hug your mom. Nah, that was kind of hard. Were they allowed to send you anything, like books to read or stuff like that? Yeah, so initially you could get books directly sent and then they stopped that because of contraband. So I made uh, deals with local bookstores that did secondhand used books in a swap trade. So, How far into your sentence did you start to read seriously? Nah, so it, it was well after the... All right, so every once in a while... A man couldn't take it on my unit. He would just jump off the top tier and kill himself. So I was on a movement to the nurse's office, and I had to go up through the top tier where I was at the time. And um, there was an empty cell where a man had committed suicide. And a prison officer encouraged me to go in the cell grab whatever books that weren't urinated on or destroyed and get them for myself and take them to my cell because I had nothing in my cell initially. So that was the onset of many headaches trying to get my brain right to start reading. Every word you couldn't understand, what did you do? So I used this template from the general education the booklet that taught me that Every word that you write down the spelling of 10 times and then write out its definition 10 times and then use it in 10 separate different sentences, you will commit that word to memory. And I just started taking the dictionary apart and I became so fluid that I quit counting books at 9,400 books. Like I, six years of study... I, I was writing 10-page letters. I just became... I fell in love with language. It's something... Uh, even that word, just... I love the word language. And I used to sit in my cell. I had one goal. I was going to be executed. I didn't want to embarrass myself the day that they put me to death. When I grew up, I had a very staccato, ugly delivery of verbiage. I took no thought in my word pattern. I wasn't considerate of other people. I didn't think. 
But on the day that they wanted to put me to death, I wanted to have a beautiful speech somehow. I didn't want to embarrass myself. Could you imagine that? You're sitting in an electric chair. You can't be more than a 20-some-year-old kid. And you're praying that you can say something before they pull the hood over with a wet sponge on your skull that they've shaved to make sure the electrode gets the most power. And you have to say something before they stick this plastic thing in your mouth to keep you from biting your tongue, which is absolutely stupid. They're putting you to death and they're putting the safety items in your mouth. So I kept thinking, I want to have something beautiful to say. I don't want to go to my death without meaning, but I didn't know how to get there without learning. So everything that I've shared about my life, I never expected to share. I just simply learned how to speak beautifully to myself so that I could master my last moments. Wow, that's powerful. It's the only thing I had. Nick, how did the opportunity for escape arise? In 1985, I was being transported to court for a new hearing on a possible new trial. After five hours of driving from the mountains of Pennsylvania down to the Philadelphia area, we stopped to use a toilet, and the toilets were offset from the gas pumps in a gas station. I got out of a warm automobile and I walked across the parking lot to the cubicles and my eyeglasses got overrung by the cold and fogged up. I went into the cubicle and while I was urinating and breathing, they even became saturated again on the outside as well. I literally was trying to navigate as a nearsighted person through this adventure of peeing, getting myself together while wearing handcuffs and getting yourself unzipped and zipped, it's not easy. With a guard watching. With a guard standing right behind you holding the door. I turn around, he says go. I go under his arm because I could see him holding the door. He's a tall gentleman. I start heading back to the car. It's nighttime. I've got foggy eyeglasses. I see... The silhouette of the officer standing there at the front of the car. He turns around and faces me, hearing me in the snow coming towards him. But he doesn't see his partner behind me because the officer standing there holding the cubicle door had to go urinate so badly he left me on my own, Sean. And that's what blew it because this guy now thinks I overpowered his off his partner. He pulls the gun out, fires a shot. I turn around and run. I fall when he fires the second shot. He thinks he's hit me. He runs up looking at me. I run towards a restaurant, big plate glass window. I'm pretending to want to run through the window so that he can't shoot into the window. And then I run around the building. I ran about 100 yards, turned right. 100 yards, turn right, and then I laid on the ground right behind their patrol car by about 70 yards and watched them. They're not going to chase their own car. I ran right back to the backside of their car. So I was laying there in the grass, and I started vomiting. 
I've just now escaped from death row's custody and all these sirens are coming and I'm hyperventilating and I can't stop throwing up from the shock and trauma of almost getting my face blown off. I look up and I saw a flag off to my left and it was in a municipal building so I knew it was like a police station or something. So I crawled on my belly through the weeds and I went right behind that building and I hid behind that building with the flag. And then, about two hours of that, my legs started cramping and freezing in this cold, cold night. It was so cold. And I got up out of there and someone saw me and a helicopter came. And he starts chasing me now with the blades coming down at me again and again and again. And I was in this giant open space at one point. I remember towards the end of the chase, he had gotten me a few times where I had to run through thickets and just get ripped to shreds because I couldn't stop to take time to look for branches. I had to just run in terror. There's this big open area where they had plowed the car park. And I saw a 10-foot fence. And I was like, oh, no. Now, you got to understand, this helicopter is down on me, kicking up snow so much. It's like I'm in a tunnel of snow being shot forward as I'm running full on at this giant chain link fence that's got to be at least eight to ten feet high and I'm thinking there's no way I'm going to scale it but I'm going to try it I'm going to try and climb this fence and keep going and I stumbled I went down on my face and I slalomed I didn't know the snow plows had pushed the fence to a gap And as I slalomed over the edge, I went right under the fence like it was unbelievable down a railroad track embankment that was like 60 feet high. And I slalomed all the way down face first in the snow and stood up and I couldn't believe I wasn't injured. And I looked up and the bird went back over me back to the parking lot where I was and back to where these lorry beds were. And he's like chasing me around. I'm like, I can't believe that. So I got up and I started walking and I walked on these railroad tracks for about five miles and I found the 1965 Ford Mustang and I drove it to New York City. It was the craziest night you can imagine and I couldn't see because of my eyeglasses being fogged up. That dude was just panicking. It's like, you you can't make this up. This is crazy. I literally ended up escaping from death row because my eyeglasses got fogged up and I panicked and dude saw me and then fires a gun at me. For the next 25 days, I was on the FBI's most wanted list until I had my father turn me into the authorities. How did that happen? I was in Florida and I called my dad and I said, Dad, they got me on a petty little crime. You've I, been arrested? Yeah. So I, I gave him the name Daniel Joseph Corbett. I found that name in a cemetery and I knew he had no social security number. Back then in the 80s, they couldn't do that until they mailed off your fingerprints to Washington, D.C. and back. So I sat there in the county jail. I had enough money for bail. It was bike week, the Daytona 500, and spring break. There was literally hundreds of kids sitting around me. I was only 24, and we were in what's called Tent City for minimum security crimes. I was arrested for possession of a damn stolen car. So 
I had to make $500 bail and I had $5,300 on me, well enough to go. I walked over and I picked up the phone. I said, Dad, call the FBI right now and tell them I'm in the Volusia County Jail and I want to come back. And I went over and sat on this bench and I waited. And man, they came in. About eight guards ran into the unit grabbed me up and strip searched me and put chains on me and marched me through the jail, put me in the, in the max unit. Uh, what were the repercussions? I got 35 years added to my time in Florida and sent back to Pennsylvania with 105 years total, plus the death penalty. And I was never expected to walk free again. Were there immediate beatdowns? No, they waited a year to get me for the escape. So then what happened? They lured me out of um, back on death row after I escaped. The prison officers lured me from my cell to go to my legal work boxes that were in storage. They took me up a set of metal stairs opposite death row that was like a warehouse building with big open windows and lights inside so you could see who was in that building. And then they beat me for four minutes in front of everybody that could look out of their death row cells. And then they stuck a riot club up underneath my arms and paraded me around to show everybody what they did to me. But they beat you with clubs? Yeah, oak sticks. Did you go warm and numb and just stop feeling it at some point? Oh, no, I did the smartest thing possible. So as soon as I saw the attack was on, I was wondering, why did they put the cuffs in front? That's a... Like these little moments, you're always cuffed in the back. Tonight's show, they had me cuffed in front with a guard on either side, big ones too. But when they got me up on the second landing, two guards in riot gear came right out of nowhere and took over on my arms. That's why they had the arms in front. And then they brought me in and they flung me on the floor and they were standing on me at first and they got the cuffs off. They put me... like. Stepped on my shoulders, stepped on my knees and everything. Held me down, took the cuffs off. Then they stood me up. And the two officers who got suspended for my escape for not properly searching me walked up. As soon as they started coming at me, I tried to attack them. I knew they were going to just light into me, so they knocked me unconscious. And a guy named Murphy told me that they beat me for four minutes because he timed it. What injuries did you wake up with? No, man, I pissed blood for a month. I thought I'd never stop peeing blood. So they beat me primarily all on the backs of my legs, on my butt, beat me all over my head and face. I have a detached retina in my left eye. They blew my eye out so bad I never thought I'd see out of that eye again. So... I really suffered for a long time with headaches after that beat, and that's why that was one of the worst um, brain trauma incidents that I had during the whole thing. That one, and I also got attacked one time and beaten pretty badly by a couple inmates. Over what? Over an attempt to get money, so I got hit with a pool ball that was in a sock and he hit me really hard with it to the point that I saw stars 
And then a friend of his tried to stab me in the, in the secondary attack. So who owed money to who? No, it was um, back in the 80s. If you committed a horrendous crime and you killed somebody, um, if a prisoner took you out, they would receive money on their books. Bounty. Bounty. So how long did it take to recover from that one? There's been so many, I can't really put a time frame on that one, but I always uh, struggled, especially when I got out. I had um, still wore eyeglasses. I've had Lasix corrective surgery, and it was during the surgery that I learned that having the detached retina in my eye actually hurt, helped with the refractionary measure of doing the surgery. Funny enough. Nick? In prison then, were drugs freely available? Did you quit or did you continue? Yeah, no, that's a strange one. There's always going to be drugs in prison. But I literally went on this wonderful journey. I was sober my whole time in prison because at first I was married to Jackie, wasn't I? After six years in, I meet this girl. And she's really bright and intelligent, and we fall in love. And I find out about DNA testing. I become the very first prisoner in America to seek DNA in 88. And what happens? Goes on a 15-year journey, doesn't it? Mate, you said there's this girl, Jackie, in prison. How has that come about? She came there as part of the Pennsylvania Prison Society who was trying to get this unit shut down because of the gladiatoring and the beatings and all that. Like I said, the unit had a five-year average survival rate. When I met Jackie, it was after the escape, and I lost my appeals. And I used to sleep during the day and do all my work at night. And I came out on a visit, and she was out there with another woman named Pamela. And I had been corresponding with Pamela. Pamela told Jackie to interview me about my complaints and issues, and I told her I didn't have any. So she's like, so what, you like it here? You think you deserve to be here? She was really like struck oddly by my response, but I was like, look, the truth is I can't get a really good cup of coffee to save my life. Other than that, I'm okay. And she's like, how can you be like this? Like, <laughs> How can nothing bother you? I said, you got to understand something. This is really sincere. I have to live here. I can't let this bother me. I'm trying to live. And so she was put off by that attitude that I wasn't complaining about the guards or the treatment or the food or anything. I wasn't into that. I didn't care about any of that. I didn't belong there. I didn't deserve what was being done to me. So I didn't have any complaints. And so she came back by herself the very next week. And she started visiting me and visiting me. And then it's, it was getting really hard, man. I didn't want her to come back. I was like, dude, can you imagine this? This woman's already trying to tell me she has feelings for me. And I am keep telling her I got forever. I don't have nothing to offer this lady. And then I find out about DNA testing in February of 88. 
And I became the very first man in America to seek DNA testing from death row. How did you find out about it? From a newspaper that was being thrown away, actually. <laughs> and it was about a murder here in England. In Leicestershire, Dr. Alec Jeffries, who would later become Sir Alec Jeffries, took all of the blood from the men in a certain age group, and he identified Colin Pitchfork as the murderer of a woman in Leicestershire in 1986. That historical effort of using genetic fingerprinting, as they called it, was huge. I read about it in February of 88, and when I found out about it, I knew that I was going to be able to prove my innocence if I had a fair shot. Did Jackie know at that point that you were innocent? Yes, yeah, so she didn't know until I walked in and told her to, that I was. Because oh, you found out about the DNA, you had hope. Well, it wasn't hope. It's a strange thing. When you didn't do something, you have the proof. It's no longer hope. It's the, the obvious. Like, look, if I did this crime, why would I seek DNA testing to prove my innocence? So over and over, invariably, I just stuck to that one feeling and notion that what I was doing was so obvious. Who would go out and seek DNA if they did it, you know? But that was a long journey, so let's go through it. You, you, first of all, you saw, you, the problem is to try and source something with DNA. What was the first thing you sourced? I went through the trial transcripts and I found out that they had sent biological samples out for serology work, the very work that convicted me, B-positive blood. I wrote to Dr. Mohammed Tahir, the head of the National uh, Blood um, Laboratory there in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania, and he wrote me back, ironically, and told me that he had the samples and they were well-preserved spermatozoa obviously visible to the naked eye on these slide preparations. And this was early on, too, so I was jumping up and down, believing in all this. And then a detective from the Delaware County District Attorney's Office went and took those slides and put them in his desk for three years and let them sit there and got away with it. So they literally started to try and murder me. So your hope was up and then dashed. But did you yeah, move on so to another strategy? You got to be careful about the hope train. Here is a word from today's sponsor, Aura. If you Google someone, you can find out all kinds of personal information about them. This information is accessible because of data brokers who profit by selling your information to robocallers, telemarketers, spammers. You can use my link, https dot dot forward slash forward slash aura.com aura is a-u-r-a forward slash sean atwood s-h-a-u-n-a-t-t wood to try two weeks for free and see how many data brokers are sharing your info also linked in my description box on this youtube version or scan the qr code on the screen Aura also monitors your emails and passwords to see if they were involved in a data breach and exposed on the dark web and gives you the recommendations on what to do. Aura has almost every internet safety tool you'll ever need all inside one app. See, the hope train 
is the worst train that you can board because you never know when it's going to stop. And the only investment in your ticket is how much you can put forth in belief. It's a terrible train. So you have to maintain realistic expectations in the face of a corrupt system. No, it goes like this. When you've learned to live despite knowing you'll never walk out of this prison, you learn an attitude of never giving hope a train ticket in your life so that it can destroy you. It's a mindset. You can't allow pure hope to blind you to this is going to be real because You've already been put on death row for something you didn't do. You've already watched them intimidate your mother to the point she doesn't want to visit you. You already made shambles of your appeals by escaping. Don't take it as this is going to be easy, and I didn't. I didn't know it was going to take 15 years, man. Did you have to numb yourself to the process? No. I just kept going at this and at this. See, my mindset is... If you want to throw me in a shark-infested tank, fine. But I'm coming out of that tank with a shark skin suit. I'm just never going to stop. I don't care what the challenge is or the battle. If I know I'm right, then let's get it on because I don't see the point of not going forward. All right, let's just go over this for the viewers then. So you're convicted in what year? 1982. You have the... The uh, spermazoa evidence is what year? 1988. But that is no longer going to happen in what year? By what year? It was ruined? It was started to be ruined in 89, and it took until 2003 to find the rest of evidence that could be used. What was the next evidence that came along? My mother went to the courthouse after my trial to try and get back the belongings that were taken from her house. They handed her a box named Yaris. Inside of it was the women's clothing and the belongings of the victim. She recoiled in horror, but she remembered seeing a pair of gloves, and she made them take a photograph of the killer's gloves back then in 89. From 1989 until 2003, I unleashed an unyielding effort to try and get those gloves tested for fingerprinting using the argon laser system of having a fish tank filled with crazy glue and having a laser take an image of a a fingerprint (coughs) because they managed to get a fingerprint off of a 40-year-old postcard of a Nazi war criminal doing the same thing. I was the foremost knowledgeable person about argon fingerprint laser technology and i was also trying to hope that there would be dna evidence inside of those gloves and there was shamefully not only dna from the murderer was found in those gloves but another woman's epilel cells from her vaginal area were found in those gloves a second possible murder victim and they didn't do anything for them people why because they pointed the finger at me. If you think about it, Sean, they gave a murderer a free pass just to hurt me, man. So that was 93? That was 19... 
90, 91. And then those gloves, I mean, that box of evidence sat there until 1995. Then I got the federal defenders to finally come on board with their finances to help me ship the evidence to California to Dr. Edward Blake, who did the O.J. Simpson murder trial, right? The evidence breaks open in shipping and becomes contaminated, and Dr. Blake said he wouldn't test it at that time because of any challenge, obviously, would be made by the prosecutor. So Jackie, at that time walked in and said, look, Nick, I, I've i been here doing this for nine years. My mom just died. I got a house full of legal boxes, and I just met somebody. I got to go. So she left. How hard was that? It was a relief because I was sucking the life out of somebody through this miserable experience that was going nowhere. And I felt guilty, and I felt happy, and I tried to be really beautifully sweet, and I wrote her a really lovely letter, and I thanked her for teaching me how to be genteel and lovable, and I reminded her of how she made me smile and laugh. Wow, this is why Nick's so inspirational when you hear responses like that, man. So what was is this the point now where you were asked to be executed? No, so that was 1998. What happened before that? No, that's when I told you the evidence got um, spilled in 98. Mm -hmm. So then from there, I get tormented and tortured by a prison officer. I'm in a unit up in Pittsburgh. They finally closed down Huntington Prison. And this officer is trying his best to drive me insane because he thought I stole a photograph from his work folder and sold it to a... (gasps) And the real person that did it told the to say that I did it. So he crushed my hand in a metal door, as you can see, and I had to be transported out of uh, Pittsburgh prison to be put into the Greene County Supermax. And then I found out I was dying of hepatitis C infection, and I entered treatment for it, but they got it wrong, and they over-medicated me so badly they blinded me in my cell. Was the hep C from fighting, tattoos, drugs? From the dentist not changing the return. (gasps) No. The dentist. They broke my teeth. They beat my face in. When he went to oral surgery to pull the roots out of the teeth that had been broken, he didn't change the return on the suction. And he infected like 15 of us with this really viral strain of hepatitis C. And I listened to three other men die of that illness right around me while they were being tortured, no less. That's horrible. So that really bothered me, man. And you can understand this. They were literally delighting in murderers on death row dying of disease. How did you know you had hepatitis C? What were your first symptoms? Oh, everything. I I looked... um, sad I took a picture of myself for my mom for her birth for like a Christmas gift you were allowed to have a picture and I'm wearing a prison brown jumpsuit and my eyes were so sallow 
I knew something was wrong. Getting the jaundice. Yeah, so I went and got it tested, and I had the same hepatitis C that killed Dale Carter and the others. And we all traced it back to the dentist. Uh, and interferon was the, I don't know if that was. That's it. Interferon and ribaviron are the two um, cancer-fighting drugs they give you. Because in the Western world, nearly killing the host, you can kill the virus. Do you get that? Yep. Like chemo. Nearly killing me. That is chemo. Those are the two drugs of chemo. Mm-hmm. Interferon and ribaviron. Those are cancer-fighting drugs. Hepatitis C is cancer of the liver. So, yeah. Did they actually give you the drugs or did they make you fight to get the drugs? Because it's expensive, isn't it? No, they gave me the drugs too much. I was getting three injections a week initially and taking three giant horse tablets a day with each meal. And then it became six pills a day by accident. And they were giving me six injections a week towards the end. And I went out in the yard one day and I looked up on a beautiful, bright, sunny day and I couldn't see a thing. And they attacked me for thinking it was a bullshit move and all this. So I decided that was enough. 20 years of incarceration in solitary confinement. I made myself this beautiful person who was thoughtful and eloquent and helped other people get off a death row. I didn't want to die in agony and have them torment me and laugh in my face, and I wasn't going to have a beautiful speech, so I asked to die. I wrote a letter to the federal court, and I asked that my lawyers be dismissed and that I be allowed to be executed. I would rather go out like that as a man than to go out having the people standing in front of your cell asking you if you want an aspirin while you're dying of impacted bowel syndrome. Didn't seem fair to me. And then in February of 2003, the killer's gloves that were hidden from my trial that my mother discovered in that box, they found DNA from the killer and possible second victim And then in July of 2003, from the woman's underwear, two separate DNA profiles, none of it matching me, and one of them matching the killer's gloves, left in the locked car. My lawyers were starting to tell me this bullcrap about how they didn't even really believe this. this. Like, in the past, they were sheepish about how I used to be the office joke, and I was like, click. I don't have time for that. I called my mother and I said, Mom, the DNA finally came back proving me innocent. Do you hear me? She's like, great, Nikki. That's so wonderful, but I can't take this call right now. Your brother Mikey's taking a seizure and he's laying on the ground at my feet and I'm waiting for the ambulance. I got to keep something in his mouth so he doesn't choke to death. Oh, my God. So kind of like messed me up really bad in the end the guard came back and took the phone off me and he saw me just laying there on the bed all fucked up and he said man come here come out all the inmates around me knew what was going on they knew i was innocent 
So they took me down and put me in a shower and put the water on so I wouldn't hyperventilate because I'd lose it. My little brother died of a drug overdose in my parents' basement the year before. Mm. My mom just witnessing that. What a moment for that poor girl. So it really made me feel horrible. Nick, what was the attitude of the judge when you asked him to be executed? Didn't get to that. They shut me all down. They made me this little shitty deal about how this was going to be consumptive, that these testing efforts were going to be the last. And it would use up all the evidence, so I had to sign off on it. I said, don't waste my time. I've waited 15 years for these tests. Do you think if I care about you taking the last of it and using it, use it? What would I care? So, I mean, was it unusual for someone to request to be executed? Yeah, that's the great thing about the American judicial system. If you're sentenced to die, you actually have the right to do that. So I had to go through that experience of pushing the system because I was so sick. And I got the judge's attention. I got the DNA testing done. So, When you say push the system, in the back of your mind, though, there was the possibility that you would be executed. Oh, I was all right with that. How does one come to terms with that? As you sit beside me, sir, you're living under a death sentence. There's no appeal process. Unless you have some terminal illness that's telling you got like six or seven days left, you don't know when you're going to be executed or die, do you, sir? As you sit beside me, you and I both right now are living under a death sentence. I was just aware of it then, that's all. Had you been read, reading Stoic philosophy or anything? No, well, I'd read all the world's religion by that point. That's funny. I spent three years of my life reading all the world's religions, and when I finished reading the last of them, I got a newspaper that spoke to me about DNA evidence. Sean, I can't make this up about the courthouse band. This is all historic. Like, I'm on this next level journey of my life, and I can't explain how I got here. All I know is that almost a year ago, I flipped the car over and both my dogs got knocked out the window and I had another terrible blow to the head. Right now, I struggle with vision out of my left eye and I don't know how much longer I have. A lot of these uh, CTE survivors, I just read, the man who went into the bank in Tennessee and just killed his co-workers, his brain is being studied for CTE. The NFL players who have killed themselves are killed, like one of them just killed a couple years ago, he killed nine people, including children, because of what CTE made his brain into. So it's called encephalitis, and chronic traumatic encephalitis get it c t e chronic means multiple times traumatic means the many times i've been hit in the head encephalitis is the buildup of plaque on the exterior of your brain causing you to have cognitive disability horrible nightmares and other disabilities like uh anger 
overwhelming you to the point that you want to kill yourself or kill others. Luckily, since I've been released from prison, I've been practicing neuroplasticity healing. And in some crazy cockamamie way, it's making me handle the onset of a very terrible traumatic experience that I've had throughout my life. The more that I exceed in being polite, I fight it off. The more that I'm loving and giving and caring, I fight it off. That's that's why I'm back in England. I need love to save me. Nick, at what point during your incarceration did you come to terms with death? Right away. I didn't care about if they killed me or what they did to me. I didn't do it. So the punishment never mattered. In fact, I was more terrified of being in prison for the rest of my life than being executed because it's called the wheel and it never ends. And then you're just a faceless number in three million people. There's a saying in prison that everyone's innocent. Did you find any camaraderie in there? Did people believe you or did were you shunned because of the nature of your crime? Some people believed in me and it was really hard when prison officers began believing in me because they became vulnerable and I would have to chastise them to stop that because they were going to get killed because maybe they would meet someone who wasn't innocent and they thought he was and they would become susceptible. So... It's a really difficult environment when you're innocent, but you got to be as hard as the killers around you. Do you I'm, think you had an advantage because of your street smarts and your size? Yeah, and then the fact that I was professionally, near professionally trained as a boxer fighter, and then I learned all these MMA skills from reading defense manuals and stuff. I know I became a very, very dangerous individual, but I had to be. I was living next to people that butchered other human beings and wouldn't think twice about killing me. Who were the most heinous crimes, criminals you heard of that were your neighbors? Author, Blom- Author Bomar, serial killer. Jay Schrader, serial killer. Uh, Gary Heidnick the original Buffalo Bill from the movie The Silence of the Lamb, he was the character they did, personified. Did, did you have an interaction with Hylip? Oh, yeah, he was my neighbor for two years, so had a few good interactions with that asshole. So I, don't ha- I didn't really have time for people like him or Ted Bundy that I was around because they're weak, they're cowardly. When I was on Florida's death row and I was near Ted Bundy, Everybody in the prison wanted to kill him because all he did was boast about getting his visitor pregnant and getting everybody's visits taken. No, Nobody wanted to be his friend. Like They were going to seriously tear his head off if they could. Did you ever speak to him? Yeah, I had an interaction with him back in Florida. Do you remember the conversation? Of course. He tried to sell me hope, and I told him I didn't get off on killing my mom by killing little girls, and he went off on me and started shouting at me in this stupid biblical voice, kind of stupid. Yeah, I was in the East Unit in Stark. You can look it up. And I was only one floor above the electric chair down there in 1985 when I turned myself in from escape. 
And asshole Teddy was only, he was in Q4 and I was in Q1. So he was around the building behind me, caddy corner, so he could hear through the vents all my conversation and have something to say about shit. I don't know why people glorified him. He was a me like, oh my God, he was disgusting. The guy you said was the inspiration for Buffalo Bill, did he end up getting executed? Yes. Gary Heidnick volunteered to be executed in 1995. And uh, he got his wish. It was a real full-on deal in Pennsylvania history for him to be put to death, culminating with his interracial daughter coming out of nowhere and, and trying to save his life. What a horrible thing. I was so angry at his lawyers for going out and finding that little girl and putting that burden on her. Imagine you're this beautiful interracial child and someone comes up to you and says, you were born of rape and your father's on death row being put to death, but we're trying to save his life. Can you come forward and help us? That's what they did to her. The system didn't do it. An attorney did that to her. Wow. Were you able to make friends on death row? Yeah, some brilliant friends. Can you can you tell us any of their stories? Yeah, I, I played one guy in chess who was so brilliant and genius. I couldn't beat him for three years. On my 57th game, I got a draw. I threw the board down. I jumped up on my bars and I started yelling, you hear that, bitches? <laughs> Nobody beats Nick Yaris 57 times in a row. 56, who cares? But 57? I thought that was the greatest moment against this dude, man. And I did a little bit of time in Supermax and to play chess, they have to like shout out the numbers. 13 to 29. Each person makes a, a 64 board in the cell and, and they move. <coughs> yep. So they play from cell to cell. Do you enjoy chess? I do. Sadly, I got obsessed with it, and it's cost me. But How did it cost you? <clears throat> I literally would play the game 10, 12 hours a day when I didn't want to think about the things that had happened to me out here. Was that necessarily a bad thing? Yeah, because I wasn't being creative and positive. I wasn't helping anyone. I had no purposeful life other than sitting somewhere in front of a screen playing grandmaster level chess for hour after hour, trying not to think about the things I'd lost since coming out here. Did you help people on death row? Yeah, that's the thing that made me truly dangerous, wasn't it? I was writing beautiful letters for men, for their mom or other loved ones, and I was helping them with their appeals. So after a while, if anybody bothered me, they had a whole lot of drama. And are you able to get jobs on death row? Yeah, I had my own cottage industry of selling donuts. <laughs> I ran How does that work? Yeah, so the lifers program allowed inmates to buy two dozen donuts every month as part of a lifers program. And I used to get a dozen donuts sent to me. I would have to pay the runner one for doing it. So I was down to 11. But each donut was worth 10 postage paid envelopes and you know how power that and so i ended up doing that and i had a football pool so 
I ended up with thousands and thousands of postage paid envelopes so I could write to people all over the world. When Jackie left me, I did this cool thing where I I sent snippets of my hair knowing that it was DNA all over the world so that I circumnavigated the whole globe while I was on death row. All of my DNA went to Australia, New Zealand, to Poland, to France, to all of my pen pals all over the world. And I just asked them one thing, do me a favor and throw my hair into the ocean because it's my DNA and I want to be free. How did you get those pen pals? There was a website that used to advertise to write to death row prisoners. And so it's funny. I used to write to people from Peru, France, Germany, Poland, Italy, Canada, Australia, all over the world, deliberately so. Because I was trying to do something unique. I wanted to circumnavigate the planet while I sat on death row. How important were those pen pals for you psychologically? It's Yeah, it's fascinating. I would sit there and look at a single photograph for weeks, imagining so much. The photographs were more important sometimes than anything because I could see a snippet of a world on a little glossy piece of paper. Were you limited to how many photographs you could have in your cell? Yeah, you can only get so many into an envelope of up to like one ounce, right? So maybe two photographs and four pages of letter. And you would read the letter over and over and over and over and over and over and then over again. (coughs) Were you allowed to put the photos on your wall or was that a security risk? I took all the photographs off my wall and I set one photograph of myself up there so that I could learn how to speak beautifully to that person because he was the one that needed to get me out of there. So I had this photograph of me fishing. I caught this enormous carp on the Susquehanna River when I was 17 and I'm holding it up with one hand And as I'm holding up this giant fish, I'm smiling. And I thought, man, there weren't many days I smiled as a kid, you know. So I wanted that photograph to be the representation of the person I needed to get me out of there. Nick, earlier on you said you had to become a dangerous person. Did that include manufacturing weapons in prison? Yeah, I I know a whole lot about weapons both receiving them and making them and using them. And what is the standard in those, like a shank? Well, there's a difference. I know the actual difference between a shank and a shiv. So a shank is more of a blade. It's made from your boot or your shoe, the shank of your boot, get it? That's where they originally came from. And a shiv is usually a round object meant for poking you in the eye or in the arteries. So I've been both shivved and shanked. So I could kill you with a pair of underwear and a magazine and never leave my cell. I could take the underwear apart and use the elasticity from the waistband along with that magazine to create a catapult complete with a dart system so strong it'll penetrate your neck and go through your artery or your optic nerve into your brain. 
What about a dart system using things like chicken bones? No, you really want to do it with something reinforced with threading because you're going to dip that threading into poison. The whole trick is to break the skin and get sepsis into the system as deeply as you can, hopefully in a carotid artery. I've seen it done. I've seen guys make a catapult so strong it would go through both sides of a cardboard box. There's demonstrations of it on television, man. Did you, or did you see people weaponize crap? Yeah, that's what it is. So you use feces, urine, and tobacco and boil it and let it ferment and become poison because nicotine is one of the worst poisons in the world mixed with other ingredients. So I've seen it done where they would take their blades before they stabbed you and dip them in poison so that if they don't kill you with this blade attack, you die of the infections. What about things like milk carton bombs? That's what that is. So you use a milk carton to do your poison inside of. I've had a lot of different techniques done. I was garroted, snared. So they get you to look backwards on the tear. Someone calls out your name, make it sound official or something. Meanwhile, when you turn around, they're lowering a garrote around your neck. And they're trying to use a six-foot or so newspaper that has a noose on it to just get you distracted enough to drop the noose around your neck and then pull on this. Yeah, so. What were the circumstances that that happened to you? Was that, again, because of uh, what you were falsely convicted of? No, yeah, so that, that attack where I was uh, nearly noosed was just a killer wanting to kill me on the tier. For kudos. Just for sport. Prison's, so, prison's a different world. People can't get it on the maximum security level. you got to be really hard to make it. What about food and commissary? So I made a good cottage industry by selling educational efforts and legal work. I didn't eat the prison food most of the time except for small items like bread. What was the prison issue? Oh, a lot of guys were defecating in the food and ruining the food. People were dying of a lot of cancer. Um, Huntington Prison um, was built. Um, there was a, a manure farm and a cow farm above the farm, uh, the prison. So when it rained, the water turned brown. So I used to have to wait and collect plastic bags full of water and, and ration my water to be safe. Wow. It's hard. I told you, five-year survival rate. On this unit, I did 12. <laughs> did you have the green bologna sandwiches and the moldy bread? Yeah, I, I tried to stay away from that. I got sick a few times in there, so I learned how to nourish myself off of the tuna fish and the refried beans and other packets of food. Is that from the commissary Peanut list? butter, yeah, proteins, and I learned about nutrition. And I, I limited myself to the dangers. Meanwhile, I learned Kundalinga Yoga, and I gave myself a fantastic body, man. That was the best thing I ever taught myself. Could you, like, get food through the black market from the kitchen, through the porters and things like that? No, just once in a while you got a Christmas package that you could buy from, you know, one of those storefronts. But, no, it was a hard time. I wasn't in a unit meant to be pleasant. 
When you went to the showers on death row, would you just go on your own? No, it was six on six on um, three or twelve on six. They put six guys in the shower together. <laughs> yeah, in a room. All killers. Oh yeah. So that was the most vulnerable time. Like That's six, insane. Yeah. Well, there's a look. You got. You have to let the men out the shower, right? But you do it individually, surely. No. They took you out six at a time, and they put you in the room six at a time for four minutes, and they ran the water. You soaked up, you showered up, and you got out of there. If you got attacked, everybody gets attacked. So you get surrounded by guards when you're in there. You get the guards are standing behind this recessed uh, concrete uh, enclave with a big, big glass window and they're watching and they're waiting. Anything kicks off, it's on. And did it kick off when you were in the... Oh, yeah. What did you see? A guy got stabbed in the liver with a pork chop bone. A guy got slashed really bad. Jesus, you can't believe how much blood comes out of a human being. And every time that they got attacked in the shower while I was in there, everybody gets beat down. So, no mercy. What was your disciplinary history like? Yeah, I didn't have many problems with the staff. I was um, occasionally, I got raided for having too much stuff. I was never a problem with the officers because I didn't have a problem with them. I wasn't there for what I did. I, I was actually close friends to a couple of officers, man crazy how they they really took a shine to me and they liked me because i was a stand-up guy i just i kept to myself i did my own time and i was always reading it was just no point messing with me what year did the yoga and meditation start and how important was that for you the what yoga and meditation oh that came to me when i i was trying to work out how to deal with not being able to have any real exercise other than a 10-foot wide, 20-foot long cage. That's it. So then I read about kundalini yoga and I learned about force resistance. So I combined the two with a blue washcloth to clean my cell because you know how dusty it is in there, man. Every morning I would wake up there would be a microfine layer of human dead skin cells all over everything in my cell, including me. Because there was 245 men locked up in one big building and no ventilation, it just had dead skin cells in the air all day long. And if you didn't clean your cell for three days straight and you rubbed your finger across the surface, it would be dust-covered. Seriously dust covered. So I started really disliking this feeling. So every day I would get up and use my washcloth, wet it in the sink, and then force resist myself against cleaning every surface of my cell until I became super ripped. Because you're your strongest enemy. Denying yourself the chance to move even a foot while fighting to get a foot ahead is the greatest competition you can have one-on-one. And I, 
I got really into it to the point that I just was super strong and super supple and happy. I was just, yeah, I was glad. What about insects and vermin? Yeah, you know what that's like, full of roaches, full of rats. I had a pet mouse for a few years. (laughs) Every once in a while, they'd come in, climb up my electrical cord, and sit on the the outlet box. And I invariably go over and give them a little dough ball or some peanut butter, and they would sit there and chill with me, man. How did you adapt to the roaches? Oh, man. Yeah, no one does that really well, especially when they've crawled across your face. They tickle, so, don't they? They tickle uh, you awake. I was in the old prison too, Sean. I wasn't in one of the new ones. So we had those big, big, nasty cockroaches. Or oh, the sewer ones, the yeah, big ones. Yeah, and they come across your face because I used to lay on the floor. Oh, I'm so not liking you for reminding me of them bitches. If anyone tickles my hands to this day, I, I flinch. I walk up so nice and tickling my hands. No, I had them all in my face and everything. They get in your food bags, your commissary. No, everything, when you've they? been beaten and you've been left to lay on the floor in the blood, they come around because of the blood, man. I had roaches all in my face for a couple of days when they beat me, man. Oh, and you couldn't move properly. They fucked me up in there a few times, boy. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't ever want to kill them in, in vengeance, though. Isn't that crazy? Did they actually have weights, or was all that taken out because it was weaponized? No, nah, I was in, I was given intensive cell therapy, they called it. 8,057 days in solitary confinement. Every day, 23 hours a day or more. 8,000 days in solitary? 8,057 days. How many years is that? 23 years all in total. <sighs> So you never had cellmates in death row? No. And the yoga and the meditation that helped you get through it? It's crazy. Language and books and the beautiful authors I fell in love with. Which authors? Oh my God, it's going to be so many. So yeah, that's like a James Michener list. So James Michener wrote Shogun in Hawaii and all those 800 Shogun books. is one of my dad's favorite books he sent me. There. I've read Shogun in fucking four hours. 860 pages. I've read the whole thing in four or five hours. What about War and Peace? 1,444 Yeah, pages. that's a big one too. But I, I read all of my Russian heritage. I love Tolstoy. Oh, yeah, Tolstoy. I had some amazing experiences where... Imagine you read The Executioner on death row. Then when you get out of death row, you go to the Colosseum and the actor in Italian reads it beautifully before you take the stage and walk up and tell the Italian audience this badass move and then drop the mic and walk (laughs) away as white doves are released all around you. My life has been like this cinematic crazy ride through reality that I can't possibly make up. Did reading get you out of the cell? It not only got me out of the cell, it gave me the poison purpose to have the words ready when they executed me. That's all I wanted, Sean. I didn't want to die poorly. What about, did you think that you get this amazing education from all these books? that you'd forsook when you were a younger person. Right. Did you go on a journey through history and learn so much more in prison? 
Yeah, I am a walking encyclopedic of knowledge, and one of the delights that my wife, Laura, has is that whatever the subject or topic is, I know things about it. <laughs> you good at Trivial Pursuit? <laughs> no, I wouldn't know how to play Trivial Pursuit to save my life, <laughs> but I'm sure I know quite a few things. Take us through the day of your release. They botched my release at 8.30, drove the van up to the gates and said, nope, his paperwork's not done. Take him back. They made me sit in a big empty room called the property room for hours while they figured it out. Then they walked me out through the front gates, no more prison van. I walked up to the microphones and I asked for the help for the two men behind me that I would eventually get out of prison. And I walked off without even complaining about myself. I was on another level, homie. When I walked down a death row, I had to get in the car with my parents who were sitting behind me while the woman who introduced me to my wife in prison drove. And as she drove along, I watched my parents holding their hands together, each other's hand. And I had a duty at that moment, man. I had to pull this off. It was so crazy. That night, I went back to Philadelphia, and they all started drinking. Everybody had to have a beer while telling me what a terrible junkie drunk I was and how I could never possibly go back to doing that. <coughs> and it all culminated in a big blowout argument with one of my sisters telling me I was an asshole for wanting to wear a cap on my head with a with a beautiful suit on because I would look like a doing that. And I told her I was embarrassed about losing my hair. And my father, for the first time ever, told her to shut up and leave me alone that I was his son and that she didn't know what they had done to me. Leave me alone. My family wasn't all welcoming and warm. It wasn't like that. And it never had been, so. First meal? bread couldn't eat anything else i was so sick i was only supposed to live three years when i got out was the hep c still did you manage to get that reduced so it was undetectable yeah that's crazy six months after i was released from prison i had zero detectability of hepatitis c and then i just i remember sitting in my parents basement thinking this is so much more than me it's got to be i mean if i was to give you a, a short litany of my life it goes like this i was raped at the age of seven i got sentenced to die at the age of 21 and at the age of 28 i had just returned from being on the fbi's most wanted list i endured a four minute beating for just that event alone and i went on to become the very first person in america to seek dna testing only to have it waited upon me like Atlas's boulder, where for the next 15 years I waited in agony for my opportunity to prove my innocence. And I was pushed to every degradation, including being blinded in my cell, being abandoned by my wife who I'd been in love with, and finally coming to the point where I'd asked to be executed only to be given the very DNA that I sought. From the very first chance I had from freedom, it was even botched to the point that they miscalculated allowing me to walk out early in the morning. 
They drove a van up to the gates and botched my release and made me go sit in an empty cell. I kept thinking, this is all going to be a joke or it's some twisted dream. I knew the moment that I walked out of my cell, I was so much better than I could have ever imagined myself being. Because within 10 months of my release, I was here in England addressing Parliament. A combined session of the lower house was left enraptured with the UN Secretary Kofi Annan walking over to me at the conclusion of my speaking and telling me he had just witnessed the greatest speaking he had ever heard in the many years he had ever heard human rights speaking. It was one of those feelings that I had, and it all started, oddly enough, because when I first came to England in 2005, I went to Hyde Park in Speaker's Corner, and I began practicing. I had no job, no qualifications. I really didn't exist much on a computer anywhere in the world, and I had no life experience to convince anybody that I could work for them. So, I did this amazing thing where I began practicing speaking and a woman from Australia asked me to go on her husband's radio program. From there, I went on the BBC's The Choice with Michael Burke and I ended up getting a publishing contract and getting a speaking platform for a human rights charity and I thought everything was perfect in my life. And just like every thing that I've gone through in my life. I guess in a way, that wasn't enough. If you think about this, Sean, no one would ever really truly imagine that what I accumulated while incarcerated could ever be translated into something that someone could visualize themselves learning from or adapting from. But in the 19 years of my release, having gone through the most terrible tragedies ever imaginable, as I sit before you, I'm homeless, have no bank account, I have no residence, no documentation. And yet, none of that bothers me because I'm bulletproof to that because I once truly had negative days and all of it is now translatable into an offering of helping people not commit suicide. Even before we did this podcast, I showed you that every week I'm helping somebody not kill themselves, not go back to using drugs, not to doing the things that destroy their lives. But the only way I would have gotten that gift is because I wasn't a success. I realize now in humbleness I don't question God. I lived the last three years in the woods. I had gone through losing my wife and children, my job, my reputation. I have a, a, a dedicated stalker, all these things. And yet, I still have the ability to get someone like I showed you on my phone to believe in a, a better life. That's what's the most important I am not in any way having any regrets. I think about this. 
I shouldn't even be here. I shouldn't be sane. I have, I'm so proud of myself that I have never given away my kindness. It's true what they say. You can either boldly live every day of your life and falsely live it as a memory because you're too shy to acknowledge it. Where you can humbly live every day boldly and beautifully share it as a memory. And I think that's what our task is in life. I really do. I have come to this point. I'm 62 years old in May. I could have never believed that on the day that they sentenced me to die, when a bolt of lightning hit the courthouse, <laughs> that I would still be here now, man. So I started speaking all over the world. First, it was about an economic embargo against Pennsylvania. Then I wrote my first book, and it's now Neuroplasticity Healing. People can't believe that I'm actually sane, a nice person, good-hearted, fun to be around, because if they knew in linear form what you know, all the shit that I've been through, they couldn't think I could possibly be sane. Just like when I first got out, People thought that if I spent 8,057 days in solitary confinement, I have to be mental. Like, I can't be normal. I can't be funny and happy. I have to be damaged. And I thought, but you didn't take the journey, you know? And then I realized what it is. People equate things based on their own abilities to truly handle something. They couldn't envision themselves getting out of prison and not being angry because the first thing I always heard was, oh, if that ever happened to me, I'd be so angry. And I'm thinking, no, you wouldn't. Why would you waste what you had left of your life being angry when that's what they were trying to fucking make you do? But I don't get to say that to them. I would just simply say, well, no, you know, I did it for my mom and dad. And, and I always take the easy way. But the truth is, you don't want to be angry when someone's tried to ruin your life. The last thing you want to be is mental as well. So you want to be happy-go-lucky. You want to be sane as possible. I just happen to be a bad motherfucker. I know it. And I don't say any of this with a boast, but I've been through every imaginable horrible thing, both in and out of prison, and I've kept myself together because I truly believe in kindness and what it's given me in power I can walk into a room and blow it away because I've been so kind to myself. I developed charm and charisma and I can handle any stage, any moment with anyone because I believe in myself. Nick, going decades without being able to make love to a woman, I can't imagine what that's like, but I do understand that some people form relationships with female staff and have sexual relations in prison? Were you able, you know, what, what happened with, in your case? No, none of that. They didn't even have no females working on death row. And the nurse wasn't playing that, so. She was usually surrounded by an officer and escorted through the unit. So when you got out then, after not having sex for so long, were you in fear, you know, that if you use it, you don't use it, you lose it, that kind of thing? It's, it's even worse. You wonder how you're going to feel inside. 
I was, you know, it's, I had a little camera with me at first, and it took 16 photographs. It was just a little tiny handheld one. And whenever I would walk outside, I would take a photograph of me leaving because it had a time stamp on it too, on the interior of the camera to tell you when the photo was taken. Because I was paranoid about getting charged with rape again. Think about that. Wow. I just got finished being accused of being a rapist murderer. And I was worried that if I went out and started dating someone, like where was my location? And how could I prove where I was this time? And then I kept the camera with me just in case someone said something about me. I would take a photograph. I would think, this is crazy because there wasn't no smartphones then. I could take a photograph right then and, and prove that it's not true. So I had a lot of, it's not so much that I was traumatized by it, but I had a lot of wariness about interactions with females because I was on the newspaper front page. I was in the television's news sections. Women were curious about me and women were reaching out to my lawyers trying to set up dates. My lawyer would say, Nick, I got this person, this person, this person's called and left their number. What do you want me to do with it? And I was like, I don't know. So, yeah, it was really hard. And I didn't really feel comfortable with myself sexually because I didn't know who I was sexually. Think about it. Not having had sex since I was on escape and 24 years old, got out at the age of 42, so 18 years without intimacy. And it wasn't until, oddly enough, after I shaved my head and felt comfortable about myself that it became okay. Nick, where do you think you would be if you hadn't made that story up about the murdered woman? I'd be dead like all my my friends and my brothers. Every one of my friends from Philadelphia are dead. God saved me by sending me to death row. So you think you would be dead through the lifestyle? Definitely. And not just going to prison. I had to go to death row to shut me down because I was so violent. So you credit... Going to death row with saving your life. God sent me to death row to save my life. That's why he struck the courthouse with a bolt of lightning. I'm not making it up. And that's why all this thing keeps happening to me in life. What year were you released, Nick? 2004. And how did you come to get on True Geordie? Um, it's a strange story, but... Brian reached out to me... And next thing I know, I'm talking to him and Lawrence. How about did they find out about you? The Fear of 13 documentary. And then we had that terrible incident with SIDS. And I didn't know if I was going to go on. But Brian said, man, it would be really important to our audience. I was one of his first 20 interviews. Yep. I remember. Yeah. It was such an empowering moment to sit down and talk about something that huge and not have it overwhelmed. And I'm sad that I had to go through so much since that time, but I just now came back to the United Kingdom in this 
like circular pattern. And it, the first person that I, I went, as you know, was back to Brian and the True Geordie podcast because we talked about this for months and months and months about I was in Los Angeles and I was out coming up the coast and I was telling him, Brian, I'll be there in three weeks. He's like, mate, you sure? I said, look, I'll be there on the 19th and I'll see you that week. So I saw him like the 22nd of last month. I still can't believe I'm only in England less than a full month and I've already done so well that tonight will be the onset of four consecutive nights of podcasting and other good things. Well, your podcast with Jordi and I think it was Paul who had the maggots in his leg, the heroin user, uh, were the two most powerful ones I saw from those years. And they, I remember they you reached out right away. They inspired yeah. me to go full on with the podcast, watching, I know. watching you. I remember, and I was telling you, just keep going because there's such a uniqueness about everyone's different. You know that? Yeah. And everyone's audience is different. Right now, I'm... I'm so blessed. I have a chance going forward to go around and go back to speaking. I love it. I want to do theaters and do a really nice speaking event. I want to go and teach people about neuroplasticity so they don't kill themselves. And who better to be the example of it than someone who should be mentally destroyed by all the things I've gone through. And does that involve teaching people that your thoughts change the shape of your brain is that what that means no actually what it is is you have a built-in reward system in your brain and going out and doing the correct thing of interacting with other people with meticulous politeness <laughs> actually rewards your brain to the point you start erasing ptsd the more you're involved in doing this the more your brain doesn't have time to be involved with the destructive cycle of negativity my mother gave me this moment where she made me promise when I got out to be a polite man and to say, no, ma'am, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. I didn't know I would meet Robin Sharma, the foremost authority of neuroplasticity teaching, and he would write the foreword of my book, The Kindness Approach. But I literally have lightning in a bottle where I can teach people how not to kill themselves. I showed you today proof positive I have an ability to get through to people who have endured terrible wreckage. And I now can get that kid who was on the cusp of just destroying his life to come back by believing in his own ability to heal himself. Wow. Do you see the gifts I keep getting, yeah. man? I'm just, got, I'm just processing this in my head. Just being polite... You're erasing your trauma. Is the brain releasing the healthy chemicals to erase your trauma? Yeah, because someone stole your kindness and you can't go on. Don't ever let anyone steal your kindness because it's making you uniquely who you are. When I figured that out, I got into this thing where I can go into the room and I've created so much charm and charisma People gravitate towards me because they feel that sincere energy. But at that same time, I'm erasing my PTSD. I'm getting the reward system over and over from their smiles and their pleasantness and their wows and their feelings. So much so, I don't think about what just happened to me three weeks ago or four weeks ago or last year. It's gone. 
I'm never going to forget this, Nick. This is true because I don't think about prison days because I literally am rewarding my brain over and over with this wonderful healing that makes me actually then artfully play with it like an artist to the point that I've used it in situations where I was feeling down and I changed the whole dynamic of my day just by playing with neuroplasticity healing. Wow. It's like a dance, and yet it's like being in an athletic situation of training your brain so that you, using a polite, correct behavior, regardless of the response of the other, they could even shout at me, I don't care. My brain doesn't know any better. My brain is healing itself. I don't have PTSD overwhelming my life because I use kindness as a strengthening tool to invoke my own healing. When I figured that out, I was like, oh, so it's a game, a beautiful artistic game that you win by playing politely. It's hard to do, though. Sometimes, like while you was back over the, in the States, um, this thing broke out in this country called the Podcast Wars. Yeah. Where that Scottish podcaster I told you about, he attacked yeah. me and I'd helped him for years, attacked me. And we were all just consumed then in this negative energy where everyone was trying to attack everyone and your brain's just firing off and you you know, you you feel affronted and you've got to react, otherwise you're gonna look weak if you don't react. And then you're consumed by this cycle then of these negative chemicals that are probably making your trauma even worse, I can imagine. That it, that's actually, what you're saying. It is you're yeah, right. Yeah. All right. So if you think about it, you controlled and added to your own trauma. Yeah. Now if you think about it, the way you go about erasing that is by a deliberate effort of each day seeking that opportunity to make another person feel good, mm -hmm. to interact with them politely and kindly. There was a woman at my wife's work. She almost stood in tears for me just making a few gestures of kindness for her. You don't know what kind of shit she's been going through all that day. But afterwards, I was darling. Yeah. Oh, have a beautiful day, darling. She was clasping her hands in <laughs> prayerful happiness. You know why? She was actually healing herself and didn't know it. But I do. Once I figured out I had the ability to heal my own PTSD, I wrote the book, The Kindness Approach. I knew that I had the ability to get people to not kill themselves and get off of drugs. And it's now documented that I've saved thousands upon thousands of people from killing themselves since I've been teaching this. Mm. Ever since I went on Joe Rogan, people of traumatic natures reached out to me, not the ones that were being ugly, but the real ones that were struggling. Thousands of them, Sean trusting me so i realize that's the best thing i can do with all of this i can go out and i can hold on to my marbles keep myself sane by being exceedingly polite and kind to people while helping to be polite and kind to myself and not being negative there's a guy i met about a year and a half ago who has cancer and his name is alex and he taught me about the word positivity what it means to him, having lived with cancer for 10 years. Alex told me that positivity is genuinely your fear making you feel powerful. 
And I said, well, what, how's that possible? And he said, well, your positivity is taking your fear away from you. It's making you feel powerful. And it's, it's a real thing. So your energy of fearfulness of being rejected by that person, if you say hello to them, is actually being taken away from you and replaced with a healing. Not only a healing, but the one that erases the PTSD that held you from not speaking to a person. And when that hit me, I was like, that's so true. We're held back by fear and we're so resentful of positivity taking it away from us, we'll actually chastise ourselves. So words have so much power. This is why I say, I am the finest speaker in the world today. I have a great opportunity to teach and heal anyone who will listen to me with neuroplasticity. I wrote a book called The Kindness Approach. And in the coming years, I'm going to make this really determined effort to help people because I'm healing myself while doing so. Do you get it? I'm literally helping myself with encephalitis of the brain. I'm helping myself with childhood trauma that I was able to describe without a single emotion. I'm helping myself survive 23 years of solitary confinement by being kind enough to myself to go out and seek a purpose for myself by teaching others something important. If that's not the greatest comeback to the biggest hurts ever, then what is? That's such a powerful life lesson. I know. When um, this podcast war thing was going on, I was about to do a big retaliation back at the Scottish podcast. And I went to a yoga center in London. And there was a German Swami there, this holy man with a dot on his head. And he said to me, think about the things you're planning on doing now in your life. Are you planning to do them all with love? He says, if, you, if, the, if you're not doing with, them with love, don't do them. It's true. And that was my epiphany right there to, to well, stop, how about this? To extricate myself from tit-tat that, that goes on. Well, how about this? I can tell you that despite whatever moment that was, both of you gentlemen are in my heart. Mm, thank you. And it's amazing how... I have no affliction of any of this, A, because I wasn't party to any of it, and B, I've opened up my arms to both of you, and I'm getting love from both of you equally. So this just goes to prove that that never really had any meaning, that it had to come out, like you said, and if you think about it, I want you to go back to what you said. It was during the era when the internet wanted it to be podcast wars so that we're delighting in this feeding of a new what was going to be negative aimed attacks and maybe perspirchments and all that but what it went right back to is what the heart and soul of this is we don't want to be entertained by a produced effort on a television we want to be able to incorporate listening to human lives while we're probably not looking at it because most podcasts aren't watched, but people will actually take the time and listen to a story based on what I used to do. See, if you and I were in a cell next to each other in solitary, there have been times I've been around a human being and I never saw their face once for three solid years. When I saw them, the person that was before me looked 
absolutely nothing like the voice that I had affixed to it. It stunned me. So like a blind person, I can truly listen to a human being. And I guess some podcast listeners can do this. We can listen to a human being's inside and who's there talking. We don't need to look at their faces. So that's what podcasting has come back to now. What it was meant to be. The spirit of the person speaking. Wow. Any questions, James, before we wrap this up? Are you religious? I'm spiritual. I allow for everyone to have their own deciding points of religiosity. But I've made a point of trying to respect everyone's religion by reading them all and then stealing all of the good tenets from each one and dispensing with beating someone to death for eating meat on a Friday or something obvious. I believe in God in this way. There's no possible way I am supposed to be sitting in this chair talking. For that miracle to take place, a lot of events and things well beyond meaning or understanding had to have unfolded either before my life or now. And as such, I'm truly on a journey, so who am I to question God's judgment or actions? Shut your fucking mouth! Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Nick, in in conclusion, what would you like to tell the viewers that have been on this journey with us today on this podcast? Thank you for everyone who's allowed me to speak to you today. Please come and visit my website, nyaris.com, or find me on Instagram. I really know that one thing will be true. At some point, no matter when I speak, someone has a terrible life situation and they haven't before found anyone they felt they could reach out to. And they send me a message. Or they'll send Sean a message. And I want you to know that's the greatest empowerment you could give to me. I don't levitate towards gratuities of being told about myself. What I really care about is that I've made a connection with someone who knew what I meant when I said, I love you for holding on. Thank you for being that kind person that doesn't need to be thanked. And thank you always for being a human being. Let us know what you thought about this in the comments. If you're not inspired by Nick, you need to go and get your head checked out because, wow. I mean, I just fell in love with Nick right away in 2016 when I saw that podcast of True George. If you've not seen it, go check it out. It is a magical moment in podcast history. And I feel so honored that Nick is here right now with us today. Just after all these years we've communicated and to hear his story again, it it just hits you every single time because there's so many elements to it. And I've tried to get some extra stories out of Nick today that no one's ever heard before. Some of those extra little details. And I really appreciate Nick coming here and spending all this time with us. Give us a big hug, brother. Definitely. <laughs> Good one, Sean. Oh, thank you, man. <laughs> Fantastic. So, if you enjoy true crime books... Gadfly Press is proud to announce the publication of Son of the Cali Cartel. 
You may have seen the Cali cartel as represented on Narcos. A lot of that was BS. William lays it down in this book, what actually happened. The Cali cartel, they took over from Pablo Escobar. They were the biggest cartel in the world, dealing billions and billions per year, US dollars. And the four heads out of the two most important ones were Miguel, which was William's dad, and his brother, Gilberto. When Miguel went to prison and Gilberto went to prison, William was running the cartel. Could you imagine running a multi-billion dollar cartel? And the DEA, war on drugs, they made them public enemy number one. William got shot up in an assassination attempt in a restaurant. The book starts out with that story. His mates got murdered and he just barely made it out alive. So if you want to check it out, it's available worldwide on Amazon as an ebook, audiobook, and paperback. And the link is in the description box below this video. Cheers. Enjoy the podcast.